We're at the last half of Exodus, of Exodus, of Ephesians chapter 19. Paul is still in Ephesus, and there's a fight that breaks out. And Luke sort of, he not only summarizes what happens here in, this, in the rest of this chapter, but he kind of summarizes the rest of the book of Acts. And he summarizes the rest of the book of Acts by, uh, our text is in Acts 19, 21 through the end of the chapter, verse 41. And uh, in that first verse, he kind of summarizes, telegraphs the rest of the book of Acts by saying, Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I've been there, I must also see Rome. So he's going to travel a bit um, from Ephesus back to Jerusalem, and then he's going to endeavor to go from Jerusalem back to Rome. And that's he ends up in Rome at the end of Acts, and the rest of the book is tracing that exact journey that Paul takes. So, but Luke goes, so he, he kind of forecasts where we're headed, where he's going to take us through the rest of the book of Acts. But here, basically, Paul goes from here in the, his ministry here in Ephesus, which is in southwest Turkey, to toward Jerusalem and then back to Rome. And it's all just essentially him in jail, him in chains, or going to be in chains uh, in his journey and what happens there and him preaching the gospel as he's in chains. And so this is his last bit of sort of free ministry, as it were, that is that's spotlighted. And it's a, it's a huge fight. So, so Luke gives us in the first verse of this section here, Acts 19.21, sort of the rest of the book. But then in, in verse 23, a couple of verses later, he kind of gives us a synopsis of what happens. And it's a classic case of Luke and understatement. He says, no, about that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. So in other words, um, it wasn't a small fight that broke out. And it broke out because of the way, which is what, how Christianity was referred to was a way, the halacha, as the Jews say, that's the Hebrew word for the way. And Jesus said, what, I am the way. So it's, it's the way of life following the King, the Messiah, the risen Lord, Jesus Christ. So a fight breaks out in Ephesus. Why? Well, let's just pause here and spend a few minutes. I want to talk to you about Ephesus. Let me just give you an overview of what's happening here. On the surface, in the text, what we see is, as Luke says, a fight breaks out. A big fight. It's no little fight. It's a ruckus. The city gets involved. There's a mob. They drag two of Paul's companions, um, Gaius and Aristarchus, in front of a council of rulers in the city. And they say, hey, our god, our city god, um, Artemis or Diana, that's, she's referred to by both names, and I'll talk about that in a second. Our city, our patron goddess, that our city is famous worldwide for is being threatened by these fools, by these people that are preaching a new divinity. And not only that, but because, of course, back then, and certainly in Ephesus, the, it, wasn't, it wasn't just, hey, religion, private sphere, what, who you worship is your own business. No, who you worship was your business. Everything was tied together. Um, that's why, um, to take a, a sidestep, that's why Socrates was killed, because he was a political threat. Because if you didn't pay attention, if you didn't pay your dues to the gods, then the gods could get ticked and the city could be ruined. Um, you wouldn't get favor. You wouldn't have protection. And so um, Socrates threatened that, and so he, and so he was poisoned. Um, 
it was a civic concern, and that's the case here. Hey, we start worshiping another god, Diana's going to get ticked. Also, we have investments in Diana. We make you know the temples at the city of town at the center of the city. Um, we make idols. We sell those idols. She's ruining our business. So Jesus is threatening all this stuff, and we're gonna get we're gonna get back to that. That's maybe the mother load sort of application point for us is expecting disturbance as we follow Jesus, and if we don't encounter it knowing that something's probably wrong, but then what are we willing to count the cost for our faith? What are we willing to lose? Are we willing to, to lose economically? Are we willing to let Jesus touch our purse strings, our checkbook, our bank account? Um, is it worth that following him? Or will we just follow him when it's easy and when, when the first um, bit of pressure hits us, the first bit of persecution, the first bit of loss or privation, we'll cut and run, we'll turn. You don't, you don't see that here. But anyway, you see a disturbance. So Ephesus, what you see in this chapter is the text tells us about this riot that forms and they say, hey, these followers of the way, they're taking us away from our city goddess and they're hurting our businesses, etc. And there's a, there's a mob uproar. And they just chant, they chant for two hours, great is, great is Artemis of the Ephesians or great is Diana of the Ephesians. And um, they're eventually quieted down by a wise council member who says, hey, take these things to court, do it in an orderly way. There's no evidence that these people have been disturbing the peace. Um, They are treated a lot like Jesus, and we will be too if we follow him. But that's what happens on the surface. What happens under the surface is the reason that what happens what happens in the spiritual realm is always the reason that things happen in the physical realm and what it's not it's what's not really reported on here but we kind of have to do a bit of contextual digging um it's all about artemis or diana this this goddess this greek goddess but there's a spiritual battle going on um she almost certainly has a, a a territorial stronghold over the city and the city has uh, its hold on this entire region probably and Jesus threatens that. And Paul's ministry and his church planting and his teaching and preaching of the gospel um, and his discipling and sending out disciples all threaten that. Because Christ and his kingdom, Christ will rule and his kingdom will spread and he will brook no rival. And so we see, we see that spiritual disturbance here and that's why we have this mob uproar. Um, to give you a bit more of the spiritual background, so Ephesus, uh, this isn't spiritual, but was growing rapidly, the most prominent city in the empire's wealthiest province. So she was a wealthy city, much like Houston, very influential, a lot of, lot of money. Um, and of course, you know, talk to, talk to me all day long about my religion, but once you touch my pocketbook, then you're in trouble. That's what happens here, right? Jesus starts to affect the bottom line. People are turning away from Diana, and they're not buying as many idols, and the idol makers aren't making as much money, and so they get ticked. Um, so why, why does Diana have two names? Why is she called Artemis too? Um, she was the patron goddess of the city, but not only of this city, but of at least 33 other cult centers, other places around the, the region and through the empire, through the Roman Empire. Um, She had the name Artemis because Artemis is not a Greek name. It predated not only the Roman Empire, but also the Greek um, Republic and Empire, and, um, or democracy and empire, I should say. 
so Artemis was an ancient goddess with a non-Greek name that the Greeks just glossed Diana over. She, if you look at pictures, Casey, I'm in the Crisp Parish, Casey and Cheryl Crisp's house church, um, and he he passed around a, a photo on a piece of paper of of a statue of of Artemis or Diana, and she isn't. Most of the Greek goddesses are beautiful. The sculpture of them, of them are naked, beautiful women. Uh, Artemis, not so much. She was grotesque. Um, she was. That's because she wasn't Greek. She had twenty one breasts. Um, she sort of was more Asiatic in her form, and um, she probably had hold over an entire empire and was ruling before the Greeks arrived. Her stronghold had deep roots in the area. Um, Peter Wagner, a scholar and missiologist, said she was no ordinary demon. So she has this massive hold on this area. Her temple says a lot about that. It kind of confirms that. It was one of the, the, the temple to Diana or Artemis in Ephesus was massive. It was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. Um, there's a quote about it. Let's see if I can find it. The sun, it was said, saw nothing in its course more magnificent than Diana's temple. It was four times the size of the Parthenon in Athens. It was larger than a football field uh, on a platform that was 130 meters, not feet, 130 meters, which is longer than a yard, right, by 70 meters, over 93,000 square feet. It was supported by 127 60-foot columns, each one donated by a different king. So there's massive support, not just civic or, or city support, but massive regional support for this, this goddess. Um, and... There were two festivals every year for in her honor, and one of them is called the Artem- Artemisia, lasted an entire month. And it, you could see the massive devotion to her, not only in how much, how many statues are being produced and how much money they make as they sell these statues, but they, uh, in verse 27, there's this, what Wagner calls exquisite language. Artemis is, quote, this is Acts 19.27. Artemis is, quote, the great goddess whose magnificence all Asia and the world worship. So, this, she defined and really possessed this part of the world. And because Christ... Paul has come in with the gospel of Jesus Christ and how Jesus is the king. He he will have the allegiance of all nations and all peoples. He will brook no rival. He is a jealous God. And he comes in and he starts to threaten not just the worship of Diana. Get out get outside of that for a second, American. Or I don't you may be from a different country. You may be living in America and, and of a, you know, of a different um, nationality. But None of us, none of us is, uh, was born or raised in, in, in ancient Ephesus. So, you know, there are allegiances that we have certainly in our lives, but even the, the, the areas that we live in have. And I think in Houston, for instance, where I live, um, there's, there's, there are territorial spirits. There are strongholds of materialism, the god Mammon. And with materialism come comfort, pleasure, 
to, to hide the pleasure is sexual pleasure. You know where I live. It, there are two streets that are famous, Westheimer and Richmond, for uh, sex clubs, strip clubs, sex shops, illicit sex parlors. Um, women held in slavery there. Uh, there's just such a an obeisance to the goddess of of sex and of pleasure and of carnality. And um, I think it's a you know we had a, a homosexual mayor. There's a you know, she wanted to make Houston a second San Francisco. There's, there's certainly the stronghold of homosexuality, which is tied to sexuality, which is tied to pleasure, which is tied to money. They're not all the same thing, but it's a web, right? Um, but comfort and ease and pleasure and country clubs. And, and I'm, I'm not saying, and I, when I say country clubs, I'm not saying comfort or ease or comfort, country clubs are bad things, but we worship, when we worship these things, and when we live for these things and when we work 60 hours a week, again, that's not wrong necessarily. But when we work and live and die for these things, then they have strongholds over our lives and over our cultures. And certainly some of these things do in Houston. So what are some of our strongholds? Um, entertainment. Again, you think about pleasure and ease and comfort. Uh, we... We bow down. I mean, think about these sports arenas and how much money goes into our, our watching and participating in athletics. Again, not necessarily bad in and of itself. God gave us bodies. Sports can be wonderful. Um, but when we give ourselves to these things and when we there's adulation and adoration and we're, we're, we're in these temples on Sundays, uh, whether in the actual Coliseum watching the 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 sport or on our on our couches we devote ourselves to these things it's what we do in our spare time as opposed to devoting ourselves to the living god um and being in his in his house so in his house we are right so we have our own strongholds every people group does every person does and christ threatens those things and he demands allegiance and he deserves it so he's threatening these things in in Ephesus, and you know, it's not for no reason that Paul, when he writes later to the church in Ephesus, he at the end of his letter includes that famous passage about our our um, warfare not being with of flesh and blood, but of principalities and of and of spiritual things. And he goes on to talk about putting on our spiritual armor so that we can stand and fight and pray. And, and root ourselves in the gospel truth that is delivered to us in Christ Jesus. Um, the fact that he has lived a life of obedience from the heart to the Father in our place and died a death in our place, an excruciating, shameful death on the cross and endured the wrath of God in our place as a sin bearer, becoming the sin of anyone who would look to him by faith and be saved as as their substitute as their lord as their savior as their maker as their redeemer so um this gospel um changes things this gospel um shows us that jesus came to one to demand our allegiance he brooks no rival two that when that happens we're going to, our lives are going to start to look different. We're going to start spending less time and money on other things and devoting ourselves to um, knowing God in Christ and making him known and making his gospel known. And people are going to start turning from wickedness and turning from their idols to the living God. 
and being brought back into his family, what they were created for. And that's going to change the landscape. That's going to change the culture slowly. But over time, exponentially, it will increase and revival might happen. And that's what we start to see here. And it literally touches the purse, spring, purse strings excuse me, of a city and starts to politically and economically affect this powerful, wealthy, prominent Ephesus. Um, and that's, the his- that's church history. That's what happens as Christ comes into a city and the gospel is preached and disciples are made and churches are planted. And so there are spiritual underpinnings to this, this disturbance. And, and when we, one of the questions we want to ask is, we want to say, you know, are there, I should expect disturbance as I follow Christ. I should expect cultural disturbance. I should expect people to be disturbed. I should expect there to be a spiritual kickback, pushback. And when there's, if there's not, that should disturb me. So that's one of the things that we see here. Christ came to bring a sword. He came to divide son from father, um, brother from sister, brother from brother, and so on and so forth. He also came to bring the hearts of children back to their fathers. He came to reconcile. He came to restore. But he came to make one new people for himself, one family. Um... And so our ultimate allegiance will be to him and not even to biological blood. And sometimes families are split because of Christ. But he's making a new family. He's making for himself a new home to live in, and that's, that's his church. That's his people that he bought through his blood. So, so that's the message that we have to preach. That's the message that we get to live into. That's our new identity. Not sports, not entertainment, not comfort, not money, not convenience, not you name it. Politics, not the state. No, our ultimate allegiance is, is, to, is to Jesus, and that's going to cause a disturbance. That's going to cause a disturbance. Um, but I guess the last thing I want to say here is just that, you know, you have this, on the surface, these waves, these big waves, this disturbance, this city riot that almost breaks out. And people that his Paul's companions get dragged in, and he almost goes in after him in the end of the theater that holds about twenty five thousand people, and and his friends drag him, pull him pull him away, and say, "Don't go in there, man. You'll get torn limb from limb." And um, you know why is this happening? And how has the ground of this stronghold that Artemis or Diana had over this city and over this region? How has it been so plowed up and so broken up? that things are really starting to shift culturally. Books have been burned um, to the tune of $5 million in, in today's currency. Uh, people are being healed. People are coming to Jesus. But what, what is it sort of the base of all that at the beginning of the chapter, as I said last week and the week before, Acts 19, verse 8, I think it is, Paul had been faithfully teaching. He set up shop there. God said, I want you to stay here for a while. My pe- I have people here. And what does Paul do? He, it's not a flashy ministry. Now, people will take his rags that are tied around his neck as he's tent tent making during the morning before he teaches in the afternoon, and and they'll take them and touch people with them, and people get healed because of the power of Christ. It's not magic. It's the power of Jesus. People would touch Jesus' robe and get healed. It's Jesus himself continuing to work through his body, through his people. So things like that are happening. People are getting healed. There's demonic deliverance. But at the base of all that, in verse 
8 of Acts, of Acts 19, what is Paul doing for two straight years? Probably about five hours a day in the Hall of Tyrannus from about 11 a.m. after he gets done working in the morning from tent making until about 5 p.m. And then he can, take a, then he can um, maybe clean up and have supper and spend the evening resting before he starts it all over again. For two straight years, what is he doing? He's teaching. He's teaching, no doubt, from the scriptures, from the Old Testament, from the, from the Hebrew Bible, and he's showing uh, how all, this thing, all these things are fulfilled in Christ, how Christ is the Messiah, what it means, teaching on the kingdom of God, teaching on the fact that um, God has sent us a, a Savior to do what we could not do for ourselves. This is not rule-following. This is not religion. This is the fact that the King has come, and he has um, lived as a man, the second man, the second Adam in our place to start a whole new race of people by faith in his name and in his work and in his blood shed for them on the cross. He has started a new creation and it won't stop until he's king over all. And the father is making of his enemies a footstool for his feet. This is what Paul is preaching and he's showing how all the Old Testament points to Jesus and is fulfilled in Christ and finds his place in Jesus. And it's radiating out now to all the nations. And he's doing this faithfully for two years, teaching, teaching, five hours a day. And it says, what's the commentary Luke says? All of Asia, verse 10. All of Asia heard the gospel. So just the fact that there's a faithful teaching ministry at the base of all these things that are happening, even to a level where culture is starting to change and disturbances are starting to break out and territorial spirits are being, their hold is being loosed. And then according to church tradition, John, um, the disciple John comes in later years later, and he speaks a word, essentially, in the temple of Diana, and the altar cracks and breaks, and the power Ephesus of, of uh, Artemis of the Ephesians is, is broken. And it's true, whether or not that happened, um, in church history tradition says, according to certain scholars and apocryphal writings, that it did, but um, whether or not that happened, we do know that church history tells us that Ephesus um, years after this, for the next two centuries, is like the epicenter of Christianity and becomes a missionary ascending uh, nerve center in a gospel, a place where the gospel, gospel radiates out from. So just to say that Paul's call, Paul knew his call. It was to preach the gospel, to plant churches, to appoint elders, and to make disciples and to send them out, to build them up and to release them and to teach the gospel and to preach it. And then John comes along and does something different. And then, you know, God works in all sorts of different ways. There's a proclamation ministry. There's a demonstration ministry. Let us hold both together. Let us value both. Wherever Jesus went, he went teaching and healing. He went um, proclaiming the gospel and demonstrating the gospel. And, And so we just see, we see that here in this last sketch uh, of Paul's ministry before he sort of is bound in Jerusalem and then then heads to Rome on a ship and then ends up there preaching the gospel in chains. Um, We see that at the base of this ministry that turns an entire city-state that has massive territorial influence up on its head is this faithful two-year teaching ministry. And uh, I'll finish with this. I'm reading a book right now called The Patient Ferment of the Early Church by, I think his name is Alan Kreider, Harvard, Harvard educated, but Mennonite pastor, I think professor, the patient ferment of the early church. And just talking about how I didn't know this patience was a key virtue, the key virtue 
in much of the church uh, in the first three, four hundred years of the church, patience, patience was uh, the key, ver- a cardinal virtue, the cardinal virtue. Just patiently studying the scriptures, patiently presenting Christ as the fulfillment of the scriptures, patiently sharing the gospel with our neighbors, patiently planting churches, patiently worshiping the Lord, patiently worshiping him in how we work honestly with excellence, not cheating, not defrauding, showing up on time, doing good work, patiently loving our wives and children and our families, taking a Sabbath, tithing, giving God uh, something of, of what is already his, stewarding all of our resources for his glory, patiently living out the gospel, um, patiently in every way with our words and deeds, sharing Christ, turning that flywheel, making disciples who make disciples over and over and over again. And, you know, it, it, it changed the landscape. It changed the culture. It changed Rome. And um, we see some of that here. So go get them. God bless you.